Hello and welcome to the Thai's Fundamental Value Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of the Thai. Today I have Anton from FloveTech on. Uh, before we begin, you know, quick disclaimer, nothing that we say is financial advice. You can read, uh, you can read the description below for the full terms and uh, full disclaimer, uh, and, as well as for any, any and all of Anton's links. So Anton, it's great to have you on. Likewise, a pleasure uh, talking to you at 19K Bitcoin hitting. Let's see what happens in the next minutes or hours, you know, 19, and hopefully we have a great discussion. Yeah, yeah 19.370 right now. So, so super, super excited. What's your, uh, what's, your, what's your outlook? Are you short-term bullish, bearish? So I think by the end of the year, not, there's not an investment advice and so on with the disclaimer. <laughs> uh, I think end of the year will hit 20K. There will be a correction, but long-term, super bullish super bullish and i think everybody who's seeing like you are and we are as well seeing what's happening behind the scenes the next bull run when it happens it's going to be spectacular actually i mean we are it's it's crazy i mean i was no just going to add like i've been going through all of the sec filings of all the major us-based hedge funds in the last few days and it's insane like like I, i posted on twitter the other day that that one of the largest funds that nobody really talks about Pythagoras which is a quantitative fund they raised 250 million dollars 2 months ago and nobody not a chirp nobody has talked about that and just quietly in their filing Pantera raised 134 million dollars for Bitcoin fund the only reason that got any press is cuz I sent it to Coin Telegraph and I was like hey you guys should probably publish this um, so. and it's, it's crazy. I mean, the amount of capital that's flowing into this space, I mean, the amount of family offices that we're talking to, and I'm sure it's probably similar to you. Same. It's yeah. just, it's not even 2017. It's so much more because it's just a totally different level of interest. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I feel absolutely the same. I do have to say is that my experience is the 2017 bull run was a lot driven by retail and now it's a different story and you can see it kind of, you take a look at the view metrics, you know, you see that the retail is actually not really following this. But it's interesting to know when you talk to institutional investors that they are price sensitive. So that means they will not go out like retail and click the buy button and push the price out. So the next bull run, as it happens, it will all evolve over a long time period. We're just going to hear one day, you know, this hedge fund has a smaller location, but in on our terms, it might be huge allocation. Right. As a part of their own, this own pension, this fifty, plan. this fifty billion dollar pension plan only allocated two percent of their assets. <laughs> exactly. It's it's you know it's it's uh, it, it's astronomical actually. Yeah. Uh, but you also demonstrate how early it is actually. You know, we are really th- we think that we are here forever and it's all done. No, it's not actually. It's so early that we cannot all imagine it. You know. Yeah. And it's no, it's interesting. And I mean, I think certainly we're going to see some of the retail come back. And I mean, and I think the last few days showed us that retail is definitely still here in some capacity, because if retail wasn't here, XRP wouldn't be up 130% in like four days, right? Or, you know, all these other stellar and all this other stuff. So there's certainly still retail investors here. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you think before we kind of get into the, the meat, do you, I mean, do you think we'll see similar patterns? I mean, the pattern that we've seen historically, right, is Bitcoin goes on a run. And yep. when Bitcoin's running, everything else is kind of flat or going down. And then when Bitcoin kind of, you know, stays flat for a few days, that's when these alts start seeing these massive runs because they're relatively illiquid. Do you think that's going to yep. continue to happen? Or do you think as we get more and more institutional capital, that's going to kind of stop? Yeah, I mean, so now reflecting and looking a bit at my portfolio where the, I still have a few altcoins. Actually, they all had like a significant price rise in the last week, actually, you know, 10 days. So I think 
the pattern will continue because it's not the first time. This will be the third time that the same pattern actually occurs. You know, Bitcoin goes up and then everything else follows. 2014, 2017. I think that's going to be the case this time. But I think that we are still holding on a lot of uh, 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 positions actually from tokens that had the run up and the round down. And there I'm more skeptical actually. I don't think a lot of these tokens that had, you know, a 90 something drawdown, I don't think they will recover that easily without showing that they can deliver because I mean, it's, a, it's so hard to go. If you're down 95% and you got to go 20 X to get back to where you were, exactly. right? It's exactly. uh, yeah, no, for, yeah, it's a big number. So yeah, let's, let's dive right into the meat of it. Yeah. So, so let's go, let's go back in time pre crypto. Where, where, where was Anton before crypto? You know, you, you kind of found the, the crypto light. Yeah. So uh, my background, uh, Finnish mathematics, was fascinated with high frequency trading. It was like during the financial crisis, all of a sudden people started talking about, by the way, most of the trading is not done by people. You know, when they show at the New York Stock Exchange, the floor, you know, I was kind of learning about it. You know, this is not what happens. Like most trading is computerized. Got fascinated with that. But was super lucky to enter kind of the high frequency trading space very early on. First as a researcher in UK, and then later on I worked for the UK government as an advisor and consultant on high-frequency trading. Just to explain why at such early age I was doing that, I was just at the right place at the right time. I kind of learned about high-frequency trading, and I had to write a report about it. And then we said, let's make it public, you know. And I wrote a report. It was called Overview of High-Frequency Trading. You can still find it online. And because it was so early and I published it, it was like the second or third hit on Google for many years just because I wrote it and I published it, you know? So that's how the UK government found me, you know, and hired me to be a consultant on a really huge project called the Future of Computer Trading in Financial Markets. And I'm quite sure they didn't know how old I was when they hired me because when they saw me in person, they used to tell me, wow, you're so young. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm really young, you know? <laughs> but, you know, this was, this was my background uh, and then really wanted to go into the industry to actually be a trader and was very fortunate to get that opportunity, move to Switzerland, to work for a boutique investment manager founded by Richard Olson, who is a pioneer in computerized trading, meaning he actually started doing computerized trading before I was even born. And I'm not that young, actually. <laughs> I am young, but not that young. <laughs> meaning in 1985, he started doing automated trading through mainframes because there was no APIs and things like that. So I joined him at his hedge fund here in Switzerland, and I did market making in the foreign exchange markets. So really exciting, you know, mathematics, technology, markets, finance, you know, high-speed trading, Really, really super exciting. And it was like a super great experience. And I enjoyed it, you know, uh, until the next phase of my life, you know. Yeah. And, and so when, when did you first learn about Bitcoin? And when did you, you know, kind of fall down that rabbit hole and decide to start yeah. your own firm? But more, more, more so even, you know, you were super interested in mathematics and computerized trading. And back when you discovered Bitcoin, there was none of that. I mean, there was probably no, not even any opportunities for that yet. So Exactly. So how I discovered actually my boss then at the hedge fund and then later my partner in my company he actually came to me one day in 2013 he said anton i know you love high frequency trading but forget about this stuff this stuff is not the future this the future is this thing called the blockchain and let's do a startup in that you know and i was like what the heck is the blockchain you know i, I thought hedge fund startup isn't that really cool so why don't we do it and i was again younger i thought okay why don't we do it and this i actually literally discovered like because my then my, my partner then told me, hey, there's this amazing thing that's called the blockchain. Take a look what it is. I'll send you a paper, read about it, and then you'll figure out why is it so important, you know, why this is actually a revolutionary technology, you know. And I when I read it, so 
I never came from the perspective of saying, oh, cryptocurrencies will, you know, uh, destroy the central banks, you know, uh, like the money, save us from money. I never kind of thought about it like that. But actually, when I read the white paper, what I understood was that the blockchain is a global settlement infrastructure and a highly efficient one. Because I came from FX, you know, in FX, you know, you have the trading that happens in milliseconds. And then you kind of have settlement that happens on a, in daily cycles. And you kind of wonder, but what the heck, how did we lose the milliseconds and the seconds that we come to daily settlement when I was actually trading in milliseconds, you know? And then when you read about it, you realize there is something in, in, in behind it called um, Continuous Linked Settlement. It's officially a Swiss company, but run out of the US that actually does this settlement in daily cycles when people trade. And then just at certain time points, net out the whole position and things are set. I mean, we were at T plus two equities up until like two exactly. years ago. So Exactly. So it was like, you know, like I, I kind of, when you were, when you're in trading, you kind of don't get it. Like, why do we think in milliseconds, but settle on, you know, in such a long time horizons. And then when I read the Bitcoin white paper, I thought, ah, blockchain is a super highly efficient settlement infrastructure and Bitcoin is just the first asset you put on top of it. That's actually how I saw it. And then my, our vision was, but this is an amazing global settlement infrastructure. That means technically you can put any asset you want on top of it. So why don't we actually use the blockchain actually to digitize assets and then have them tradable? And this is actually the company that we started in 2013 called Lycan with a big vision. We want to build a digital asset exchange where people could trade different kinds of assets, you know, cryptocurrencies, of course, but also different types of assets, you know, and that was kind of like our, our big vision, what we want to do. We started in 2013. It was so early. I cannot explain it to you. It was like you would walk around, tell people, try to explain what's... I we went to these big Swiss banks and tried to I mean, to how, did, to how did you explain to your parents or your friends what you were doing back in 2013? Uh, actually, so it was very interesting. My father is a veterinarian, actually. And so he doesn't know finance at all. But he understands... He would tell me, Anton, can you wire me some money because I want to go hiking and I need some money and whatever, you know? And then I would tell him, yeah, I send you the money. And then he would go to the bank and he would say, uh, where is the money? My son just emailed me. The money should be here. So if, you know, updating ledgers is just updating information and my, my son just sent me like a piece of information that he sent me the money, why the heck is the money not there? So I told them, father, what I'm trying to solve the problem is that when I send, say I send you the money, it's actually there. So that's uh, then my father still told me, son, I still have no clue what you're actually doing, but I get that it, you're trying to solve the real world problems that even I can understand as a veterinarian because my father is not uh, like a financial engineering expert. So this is how I explained to my father. My father gets it. My friends, they had no clue what I was talking uh, for a long, long time period. They would even come tell me and say, Anton, just stop with this stuff. Nobody understands what you're talking about. Just stop, you know. Yeah. Um, of it's, course, they regretted it a bit later, you know, in 2017. They were like, ah, oh, you were saying about this stuff. Yeah, I was for a long it's, time. So, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, my grandparents still have no idea what, what I do. Yeah. Zero clue, but they know what yeah. the price is. So that, yeah. <laughs> they know what the price is because my grandma was like, oh, I read in the Wall Street Journal today that the price of Bitcoin went up to this. So kind of crazy to see how far we've come to the point where you can see that. So back, back when you started, you know, who were your competitors? Were they like Mount Gox? Was Coinbase even around yet when you started? You know, no, so Bitstamp? Uh, that was actually, it's very funny. It's like the first big bro blockchain or crypto company. Nobody remembers it. Today. It's called Monetas. 
And the reason I don't remember it, it blew up in the meantime. But I remember when I when we started our company, I got their uh, business plan and I saw, wow, there is 100 million, you know, a blockchain company. And they had kind of like a big vision of creating a ledger where people could trade and exchange digital assets or currencies very swiftly. And um, the reason why Monetas is well known a little bit still now is because of the founder. His name is called Johan Gevers. And of People who have a bit of a good memory remember that because Johan Gevers was the president of the Tezos Foundation when Tezos actually did their ICO, you know, the biggest, you know, one of the biggest ICO ever. So he was the the president of the Tezos Foundation. And when they had this friction, how will be the the funds, you know, distributed, then he was still there. And that's kind of like maybe a few people know about uh, Johan Gevers, but actually he was the, he was the father, the grandfather of the Crypto Valley is Johan Gevers, who actually, Monetas was founded in Canada and moved to Switzerland in 2013, actually. He was in 2012, founded in Canada and moved in Switzerland in 2013. And that was the superstar company. And I remember when I was like, wow, they have such a great team and raise so much money and doing cool stuff. I was like, they were such an inspiration for us. But there was actually... uh, Monetas, it was Zelike, and Bitcoin Swiss. Today, maybe a few people know it, it's the largest brokerage uh, firm actually globally for cryptocurrencies. And they were around, started uh, by their founder, uh, Niklas, who looks like a pirate always. That's how you can recognize him very he's easily. A great, super he's nice a great guy. interviewee. I've seen a couple of interviews of him. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, a, he's great. Super cool guy, great guy. And I mean, if you hear his stories, I mean, they started it out of, out of the living room of his home, actually, you know. So this is how, how it all started, very, very humble. But it was a great community. I mean, you could literally meet people like the Bitcoin core developers. You can meet them. You could go on a, for a coffee with them. It was totally normal. Try today to get a meeting with, uh, you know, or with uh, somebody from the Ethereum Foundation or, or one of the Bitcoin core developers. It's impossible, you know. But back then, it was like, you were the only ones around. <laughs> you know, there was you were no the one only one that cared. <laughs> yeah, you were like the only ones who were like understood what the heck you were talking about. So it was super humble actually at the beginning, but super much fun. And I'm with most of these people who are still around. I'm great friends, and we're all still pushing and trying to make the ecosystem better, better and bigger. So it's uh, it's an awesome experience. And so, what were some of the main challenges with starting an exchange back then? And more specifically, the question that I always kind of wonder is, like. How does an exchange start? How does an order book start? What, is it, what does it look like on day one of launching an exchange? Yeah. So when, you know, we wanted to uh, build what people call today a semi-decentralized exchange, meaning that the atomic swaps happen on the blockchain, but the matching of the trade actually is centralized because the matching engine has to be super fast. I mean, we came from high-frequency trading, so we kind of knew that that has to be the case, you know. And then really the first challenge was how the heck do you build a, a semi-decentralized exchange, you know, because... Doing atomic swaps on the blockchain, I mean, how do you even do that, you know? A blockchain of Bitcoin, Ethereum didn't even exist when we started, you know? And then you kind of discovered, again, nobody knows, talks about this anymore, colored coin protocol, which was kind of like a simple way how to tokenize assets on the blockchain of Bitcoin. Then how do you actually even... So I was I actually there? just looked, because you, you mentioned colored coins. I yeah. went on Cointelegraph, and I just wanted to look when the last time it was mentioned... 2015 is the last time there was a news story mentioned. Exactly. Exactly. Super. I mean, it was a crazy long time ago, but that was the main, uh, the best technology ever. You know, that's what you, it's like the equivalent of today. If you use Tezos or Ethereum for smart contracts, that was the, that was actually the cutting edge technology. Today, just not competitive at all. But basically, you know, we went and built, uh, and we wanted to be very aggressive saying, let's roll out an exchange. Basically within four months, we had a very good, experience you know within the team coming from exchanges you know high frequency trading so we kind of wanted to do it 
But also, I mean, I, we kind of touched upon it on our private list. Like we wanted to diversify. So basically launched the exchange on two blockchains and we said, okay, the blockchain of Bitcoin that we definitely, you know, integrate. And then what's the alternative, you know, if things fail on one side? So we, can, we chose SolarCoin, you know, and people used to ask me, why the heck did you choose SolarCoin? And it turns out because they would ask me, why didn't you integrate Ethereum? Well, you are supposed to be the smart PhD guys. They were telling me Ethereum was not even there, you know, when we started actually. So basically we hooked up into two blockchains and that means also creating one of the first solutions. How do you do actually cross-chain uh, cross atomic swaps? Because actually there was no solution back then for them. Polkadot, the vision was like laid out in 2017 or 18 or whatever. So we went to basically launch it. And uh, it was actually a very interesting experience because I came from the opposite side. I was on the high frequency trading side. And you kind of, you know, the exchange is your counterparty. But when you're in exchange, then everybody else is your counterparty. And can you, when you realize like when you launch an exchange at the first day, it's like a desert. There's just nothing there, you know. It's like you're trying to onboard people. People, you know, open the platform, the application. Do you still like, remember the first trade? Uh, so to be very honest, the first trade, when we launched the exchange, the matching engine in the in the back didn't, sorry, the, the booking system in the back didn't actually match the trade. So the trade would happen on a platform, but then in the back, you would have to book it manually, you know? So this is actually how it started because we really wanted to roll it out fast. Of course, we fixed it. It all went to the database. But basically... It meant in practical terms that the trades would happen, but your position would not update, you know, and stuff like that, you know. So <laughs> it was like a bit funny situation, but we literally launched it and the first few trades were actually in the back booked manually. I mean, people would click the buyers, the buy, buy button or the sell on buy button, but in the back, we would have to book it manually and things are actually the ball got rolling, you know. But it was an amazing experience. I mean, you literally launched an exchange and back in those days, you just look at it. Clients come in, they say, Anton, but there's nothing on your exchange. Like it's a, the order books are completely empty. And you're like, yeah, of course, because it's a new exchange and nothing is happening. But basically, you know, we went from zero to 100,000 plus clients. It was an amazing ride, you know, in that sense as well. And also a lot of learning experiences, you know, that when you launch a semi-decentralized exchange, that certain things don't work. And we were like kind of, we had a lot of PhDs in the company. So we we're like, ah, oh, maybe the blockchain of Bitcoin will not scale, you know. Maybe that's an option, you know, and then you kind of try to anticipate these kind of things, but only when you do them firsthand, you know, then you realize what are the amazing challenges that we have for the digital asset industry and how early we are actually in that context. Yeah. So speaking about scalability, you guys were actually one of the first companies to implement the Lightning Network. Can you tell yeah. us about, you know, that process and, and, and your thoughts about both the scalability of Bitcoin, but also the Lightning Network in particular? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this was actually the topic, you know, we, actually, when we launched the exchange very quickly, you would realize you just kind of do the multiplication, say, okay, we have 100 clients, just multiply that by 100, you know, so we have 10,000. And you look and you say, we actually do atomic swaps on blockchain, you're like, wow, this will never work, because, you know, the blockchain Bitcoin is way too slow. And how do we actually resolve these problems? And you, then you Google online, and then you find Lightning Network, you know, and you say, in the, back then, it was called off-chain settlement. And basically, we said, why don't we implement the equivalent of Lightning Network for kind of for trading Bitcoin against a colored coin? You know, so this is actually what we said to do. And we really thought kind of it makes sense because the blockchain of Bitcoin doesn't scale by nature. Actually, just that's it doesn't scale. You cannot do many uh, payment or transactions very fast within a short time period. So Lightning Network was kind of like saying that you can do that. And just to explain for people maybe who don't know the details about Lightning Network in plain language. If you have the blockchain, the Lightning Network is like a layer two payment network 
where you can actually do many transactions very often and very fast. And basically the way it works is you kind of commit Bitcoins to the Lightning Network and then a bi-directional channel opens towards the Lightning Network. So if you and I kind of have two nodes and we both commit each a Bitcoin, then you and I would actually create that channel within the Lightning Network and then you could just send things back and uh, fast, you know, and often, but actually you don't uh, broadcast transactions to the blockchain of Bitcoin until the payment channel is collapsed, until it actually is taken down. This is basically how the Lightning Network works. And we kind of said, so first, a learning point, Lightning Network is not a network, actually. It's a collection of channels, which is then very important that you learn very fast is that if I want to pass, if I want to use the Lightning Network and pass, you know, uh, a certain amount of Bitcoins to my friend through you, then if I want to send five Bitcoins, but you only have staked two Bitcoins, then no more than two Bitcoins can pass through you. So it means my friend can actually at most receive two Bitcoins. And then when you think about that, you realize, wow, so wouldn't it be cool if you had actually nodes or entities that have huge amounts of capital so they can kind of serve as a gateway for a lot of these payments, you know, and these things are called liquidity hubs. And uh, for instance, that's what we learned very fast at Lique when we launched, the, when you put the light, Lightning Network on top, you know, beneath our exchange, is that you need to have a huge liquidity hub, you know. And who creates a huge liquidity hub when an exchange is running the Lightning Network? It has to be exchange itself. So if I could tell you how many millions we had staked in Bitcoins, locked in in Bitcoins to support their, the Lightning Network just for ourselves, it was a way too big number, actually. So you kind of learn that very fast. And then you also what you learn is that Basically, it's a capital constraint, and that means that the liquidity hub cannot have a lot of these payment channels open. He always kind of has to open them and collapse them to be capital efficient, you know. And this takes time, and this kind of doesn't work. And so we kind of realized, okay, this is just not going to, it's not feasible. Like this Lightning Network setup with the huge liquidity hubs, it's a huge problem. But then also an issue that you have that we discovered towards the end before we actually abandoned it was actually that there's something called... um, uh, probability uh, of payment failure within the uh, Lightning Network. And ju- that just means if I have to hop between five nodes to make a payment to my friend, at which point that payment fails because you just don't have the path and enough capital staked for that payment to happen. So if I have to send some Bitcoins to you, but I have to pass to 10 nodes, you know, at which point just uh, like it's unfeasible that it will end up with you. And it turns out if you have, if you have to hop to more or less four or five nodes, the probability of a payment failure is pretty much 99%. And then I was like, wow, very interesting, you know? And then the first question is, yeah, but what if the network scales? If the network just becomes huger, does that probability change? And it turns out the answer is no, it doesn't. So even if when the lightning network grows and you have more nodes and more uh, bidirectional payment channels, Basically, if you have to hop between like five nodes to get to a summer, still your probability of payment failure is pretty much way too high to be, for it to be a feasible, global, scalable, and fast payment infrastructure or exchange infrastructure. So basically, it didn't work when we implemented it. Our, our exchange, it was a huge failure because we had a lot of smart people, a lot of PhDs in our company, and we, uh, we always sat down and really thought it through. And we said, come on, we really kind of are trying to prepare and we thought that it works. And it kind of completely didn't work, actually. So my experience, and this is usually what I tell to people, practical experience, uh, Lightning Network just doesn't work. It doesn't scale and it has problems, you know, with these payment channels and huge liquidity hubs, so it just doesn't fly. So what, what about your thoughts on Bitcoin scalability more broadly? Um, do you think there are 
ways that Bitcoin can scale and does Bitcoin need to scale? Um, yep. So I don't think uh, Bitcoin needs to scale. I don't think it will ever be a payment infrastructure. It will be an infrastructure that supports uh, an asset that's a store of value. I think that's actually what's going to be the case. Uh, people still argue that it can work for microtransactions in the context of the Lightning Network. I still don't think that flies, actually. I really like the, the approach with wrapped tokens, wrapped Bitcoins. Just to mention, if you mention tokenization, tokenizing Bitcoin and putting it on an Ethereum network in 2015, it was blasphemy. I mean, people will literally kill you. I know because I had these kind of discussions, but today it's normal. So I think actually, if you ask me what's the solution to make a, a Bitcoin transfer, Bitcoin scalable is actually two wrapped tokens, actually. These are my thoughts around this. And so you guys were also one of the first companies to launch a security token, LKK, which I think you mentioned to me was launched on the Colored Coins uh, protocol. And so why did you decide to launch a security token at the time? And, and what, was that, what was that process like? Yeah, so the, the vision or the reason why we decided to do it is actually we really wanted to put our money where our mouth is, you know. So we were preaching the big vision of tokenization, of digital assets, you know. People can, you know, access cryptocurrencies. And we said, why don't we actually digitize our own shares and put them on the blockchain so people can trade it? Isn't this like the most powerful demonstration that these things work? And we decided that very early on when we launched the company. And then it's a very funny thing, actually, when you want to digitize shares, actually, you very quickly realize that in the Swiss law, Actually, the only way you can exchange shares is if you sign a contract with a handwritten signature. And I only remember I learned that one day when I spoke with a legal expert and as we were leaving the meeting, he told me, Anton, by the way, if you want to digitize your shares, you still have to write the handwritten signature. And I remember I was like, wow, I didn't know that one when we came up to an idea. The other way how to do it is actually that you will do something called dematerialization of shares. And that basically means you are a bank or a regulated entity, which we didn't want to do actually. So in practical terms, that means actually what we did is we tokenized something called value rights. We tokenized value rights that are claims on our shares. So it was actually what we, when you read, read the fine print about our security token, actually you would see that it's not digital shares because it's impossible to digitize and put on the blockchain, but value rights, which are just liabilities or derivatives or claims on well, the shares. It's kind of like the US dollar, right? It's a note that's redeemable at the treasury, right? Only, exactly. only certain dollars are actually valid and others are redeemable for smaller amounts of currency. So it's kind exactly. of a similar similar idea. Exactly. And, exactly. So, yeah. and so did you guys actually do a token sale? Did you just tokenize your shares and then make them tradable? How did that work? No. So we actually did, uh, uh, we tokenized uh, our shares and we actually did the, it was the first ever public crowdfunding of what people call today security tokens. It was, it was done under the heavy heavy supervision and awareness of our kind regulator here in Switzerland. And we did actually, I mean, that for sure, I am for sure, we did the first security token offering, meaning that you can literally buy those tokens that represent, you know, liabilities or claims on our shares. And also, I mean, it was very uh, an amazing experience, you know, trying to, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to do a crowdfunding for, you know, tokens and i remember people used to come to me and say ah so you're doing this uh, it was all called ico back then yeah so you're doing this ico and um, how do i mine your coin and i would tell them man you don't mine my coin it's shares you know but you know to really illustrate how early it is because the first ico was actually done in 2014 it was 
for a token called Megacoin. People don't remember it under that name today. It's actually been rebranded to OmniLayer, and OmniLayer is famous because Tether is issued through OmniLayer. But actually, in the back, the first ICO was done uh, by them, actually, you know, when they raised a little bit of money, uh, you know. It was very funny, you know, because you asked me how do we do it, actually. I was uh, friends with, uh, in Switzerland, still, uh, you have the first ever Bitcoin Core developer that lives here called Mike Hearn. So if you ever Google, like, Satoshi Bitcoin, and you see when he posted the white paper, the first question asked, actually, on the forum was by Mike Hearn. Who said, hey, this looks interesting. What is, what is this thing? You know, can I take a look? You know, what you did there, you know? And I was friends with Mike Kern, just funny situation. We went out quite a bit, you know, uh, because we just went out because we knew each other through different channels. I never asked him, what do you do in your life? And he never asked me, what do you do in your life? And I think one time he told me, so he was before at Google for many years and then he kind of went uh, by himself and then he became a Bitcoin Core developer. And, you know, I remember one time he asked me, like, Anton, what the heck do you do? You always talk, there's this startup that you're doing. What, do, what are you doing? You know, like what's, I don't know. Can you explain to me? I actually told them, Mike, I know you're a smart guy, but what we're doing is really, really cutting edge. I'm not sure you would really get it, you know? So let's just focus on the beers, you know, and talk about others. I actually said that, you know, one time. <laughs> so it was, uh, the reason why Mike Kern is actually interesting in this discussion is because he created a crowdfunding platform on the blockchain of Bitcoin called Lighthouse. Again, today, nobody remembers this kind of things, uh, but it was actually the first crowdfunding platform where people could raise funds to Bitcoin, actually. And we approached Mike at the early stages saying, why don't we use your platform? You know, you know we want to do crowdfunding and you have a platform, so isn't this like a natural fit? It was very interesting. His feedback was, it will never work. Why would anybody do crowdfunding through Bitcoin, actually? That was 2014. So you can imagine actually today when you reflect on this, you realize, wow, how wrong he was actually, if you think about it, right? We are talking about security token offerings, utility token, everything is, you know, that's the big vision. But in 2014, to understand that this will actually work was really, it was a brave decision to believe in something like this. So that's the reason why we actually didn't do it through Lighthouse uh, uh, platform, but we actually did it ourselves. It was a very painful process because you have to do like really all the hard work in the back by yourself, but it was a successful. We raised over a million through this first security token crowdfunding. And kind of as we raised the money, the next day, you know, the token was on an exchange and off it went. And so what are your thoughts on security tokens today? Because I think that the market has matured a lot slower than people would have thought, especially yeah. in 2017, because, you know, in 2017, there was really a lot of, you know, yeah. a lot of conversation about security tokens being the next wave after ICOs and, you know, being traded by large financial institutions, you know, yeah. why don't you think they've, you know, achieved mainstream adoption yet? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think actually, as you said, I don't think they have achieved mainstream adoption or not even close to that. And the first obstacle in my view was actually that you are at that point when you work at security tokens, you're in a highly regulated and compliant environment. And unless you are a player like that, it will just not fly, you know? And that's what we were missing, you know, for a long time and kind of things are improving. We're still missing the infrastructure actually, you know, the regulated custodians, the regulated brokers, the regulated marketplaces, alternative trading systems, multilateral trading facilities, however you want to call them, they're still missing, yeah. The second thing is uh, uh, why it was very hard and still is actually for uh, security tokens to succeed is because you get adverse selection, actually. Because who does a security token offering, like, logically? It's 
companies who cannot raise money the normal the normal way, quote unquote, right? So you get a lot of adverse selection, you know, meaning that they would struggle either way to do it, you know. And I think that will change. So that's the state of the matter on my side. I think that will change going forward. You have a lot of now companies that did get the necessary licenses in super strong teams. I'm happy to mention one. In UK, you have the first ever regulated, FCA regulated digital asset exchange for security tokens called Archex that, you know, got the license just recently, will go live in March 2011, very soon. And they will be kind of a driver, at least in Europe, a first strong one, where they will actually roll out a lot of the security tokens, do it in a highly regulated and compliant environment, and basically will have the, all the infrastructure in place to do it. But again, if I'm telling you March 2021, uh, you know, that means actually it's super early and it's not going to be tomorrow. But you're slowly having these players that can support this kind of things. In Switzerland, you have two FINMA-licensed native digital asset banks like Signum and SEBA. You know, the six, the Swiss digital, uh, Swiss exchange, six, actually launched a Swiss, a six digital asset exchange. So it means like a lot of these players are coming about. But basically, if you're asking me how soon are we, you know, how fast is it coming in a year, year and a half, you will have actually a growth of security tokens, but not anytime soon in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, I think a, a huge part of it is also just liquidity. And I mean, we know Coinbase has been kind of openly talking about it and building a security token platform for a while now. So I think it also, in my view is, you know, I think the adverse selection point is great because I look at it and it's like crappy marijuana companies that are raising, right? It's like, it's like companies that wouldn't have raised otherwise and just weird projects that in some cases could be money laundering um, and, and different things. But, but I think once we start seeing a large player whether it's a crypto native player like a Coinbase or a traditional player like an LSEG decide to kind of put their foot in, you know, the door. I think that's when it's kind of, I think the market needs a signal like that in, in, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with you. And I think in the last time period, you know, last month, I think uh, the CIO of BlackRock was the other day on uh, on CNBC talking about digital assets. I mean, particularly about Bitcoin, but it doesn't matter. It's like basically a vote of confidence from a really big financial institution. That's what we need. And then, then it will fly, in my view. Yeah, and I think coinciding with CBDC is launching as well, right? You know, the, the digitization yeah. of cash, you know, I think yeah. means that we will see digitized securities at some point. Absolutely, yeah, yes. And I mean, go ahead, sorry. No, no, go, go, go for it, go for it. Yeah, I mean, also when it comes to CBDC, I'm really like very, very impressed what's coming out of Asia, particularly out of China. And I think if I can kind of say uh, about things a bit behind the scenes, what I understand or what I've seen is that China will roll out a whole new financial infrastructure on the blockchain. It will not be blockchain in that sense. It will be a DLT solution, yeah, because highly governed, if I can say it like that. Uh, but, you know, what I understand, they will roll out a completely new financial infrastructure and in the back there will be a blockchain DLT solution. Driving it, then uh, CBDC will become, I mean, digital currency will become a normal part of that infrastructure. So, so I guess you just answered the sec- my, my follow-up, which was bullish or bearish for crypto. Super bullish, actually. Yeah. And so you decided to leave and, uh, uh, and start your own uh, company called Flovtech. So can you yeah. explain what the reason was why you decided to leave your exchange, um, yeah. you know, what the impetus was and, and to kind of go off and start your own company. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
when you run an exchange, uh, but especially when you issue your own token, what you really learn the first day when the exchange is up and running or when you have your own token that without liquidity, you know, and talking about liquidity in 2015, 16, you know, it was like you realize without liquidity, none of this vision works. You can tokenize whatever you want. You can fractionalize whatever you want. Just because you can t- trade smaller amounts doesn't mean there's any liquidity. And actually, we, that's what we saw actually at our exchange. One of the biggest problems we had as a running exchange was actually there was no liquidity at all. And we didn't have a market-making solution. And I kind of, especially since we're uh, operating in a highly regulated and compliant environment, I kind of went out and said, let me try to find that trusted player that can work with us and solve that problem. And then I realized there was none actually, in a sense that, you know, what kind of the requirements that we had as a Swiss entity, Swiss exchange, we had was a lot of players kind of operating in the crypto wild west, which was not feasible for us as a solution, but just not the right fit at all. I kind of took this challenge very, very positively and said, wow, by the way, if I solve this problem or if I create a solution to solve this problem, potentially actually any, any exchange or token issuer can benefit from this solution. Yeah? So January 2018, I still remember it. Crypto was at like nine, 19,000 or whatever was the price. I said, I do an exit at my previous company and off I go and start Floftech with a vision that we build this um, technology, these market-making solutions that are aimed or offered, provided to digital asset exchanges and token issuers such that we can create a liquid, uh, stable, and efficient market for all these tokens that uh, are out there. So this is actually my vision, my goal, and also kind of always, always in the background what I was thinking is like, yeah, you know, the security tokens, they will come one day and that when that thing takes off, it will be massive. And basically the from day one, actually, Floftech was prepared, actually, and still is prepared, being prepared. That once the security tokens come out, uh, you know, we will, that will be the market for us, in addition to the, the crypto markets, yeah. And so why is, or what makes market making different in kind of a digital asset world versus in, in, the, tr- in the traditional yeah. finance world? Yeah. So kind of when, if you go and take a look at market making and reflecting on my experience actually in FX, but if you just think about the U.S. equity markets or whatever traditional markets you think about, first what you realize actually that the market makers are actually either banks, you know, or proprietary trading firms, prop shops, yeah. And kind of, that's a kind of a very diff- different model in also in a context that it's actually very much geared towards trading and making money by trading actually, you know. And this is kind of like the logic how you do it. And I kind of, when I started Floftech, I kind of thought I don't want to be a prop shop and I'm definitely not going to be a bank just to do, uh, provide, you know, market making solutions. And we always saw ourselves actually as a technology company that offers this solution to the world, to the client, you know, which is again, quite a bit different because today, if you go to a prop shop in the traditional world and you say, look, can you market make for my shares? They will tell you, yes, we do it. And if you ask them, how do you do it? Can you be transparent and disclose it? They will tell you. No, take a hike, you know, we do it, we trade, we make, do a prop trading, but, you know, what do you want beyond that we will do it? Yeah? And I kind of didn't see it in that way. I really wanted to create a technology company. We deployed the market making solution for clients, you know, uh, very important in the context of security tokens, we run it off balance sheet. That's a huge difference than actually do, uh, how people do it in traditional ones. And just explain what does mean off balance sheet and on balance sheet, what it means actually. On balance sheet means that the someone that's usually either the issuer or somebody. You actually loan it, loan the assets to you, and you put them on your balance sheet. They're loaned to you, yeah. And then off balance sheet model is that they either see in something called a managed account or a special purpose vehicle, and then you have the trading rights actually to use those assets to do any particular. Thing. Is yeah. is that how all the crypto market makers are working though? Because I do know that some crypto market makers are 
borrowing assets from issuers? More, what I, I mean, you know, what I know from the industry, most of them are borrowing assets. That's not a problem if you're operating in the pure, unregulated wild right. crypto right. space, you know, especially right. if you sit in a funny jurisdiction. But the problem is as soon as you put uh, uh, financial securities on your balance sheet, you trigger at least a broker-dealer license, if not a banking license. That explains why a lot of market makers and institutionals are actually banks. You know? This is completely not feasible for security tokens to do it that way. And I'll explain you there are two reasons, actually. First reason is because you trigger a hell of a lot of licenses, you know, just by putting a highly liquid token by nature, you put it on your balance sheet, which is a financial security, that trigger a... Uh, 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 a license, a, a really complex license, you trigger regulatory capital requirements. For instance, in some jurisdictions, you have to put up 20 million in capital just if you put one financial security on your balance sheet. And then because those assets are highly liquid, you have further capital charges. Meaning that if somebody wants to provide a market-making solution for security tokens through their own balance sheet in a normal jurisdiction, the capital requirements do that and the complexities in the back will be humongous that it's completely not feasible. That's why Flowstack doesn't do it like that. We do it actually through uh, something called managed account. That literally means that the uh, the token issuer, whoever supplies the asset, they open an account at an exchange. They deposit the assets there. We get the trading rights through something called a power of attorney, which is just a document that says we can use the account for this specific purpose. And then you sign an investment management agreement that specifies the goals of the mandate or the market making mandate. And then you run your infrastructure, you run, you know, you provide those bits and asks, bits and asks in the uh, order book. And the reason why it's important to sign investment management agreement, because you stay within the domain of an asset management company. You're not a broker dealer, you're not a bank, you're an asset management company. So you are just having an asset management mandate. Yeah. And that's way how to do it, where you can do it actually highly efficient. And also, that means also very specific infrastructure they have to run on your side because if you don't commingle assets, that means each infrastructure that you roll out has to be segregated for each particular client. Reporting has to be segregated. The low latency trading system, they all have to be segregated. They cannot commingle as the assets don't commingle as well. And um, likewise, there also means certain specific things on the exchange side that the exchange has to support uh, multi-login accounts because the, maybe the... Uh, whoever runs the liquidity mandate needs to have long logging, the client has to have the non-logging, things like that. So it really requires a bit different setup than actually what's in the traditional, but that one is feasible that you can actually provide liquidity and make those uh, security tokens liquid. Yeah. And so what types of companies do you provide market, uh, market making services to today and why do they need those services? Yeah. So to be now fully transparent, actually an open pretty much all of our clients are actually in the pure crypto space. And if I kind of have to describe how it works is that uh, you have exchanges, digitalized exchanges or token issues. And token issues, it's quite straightforward. They usually approach us a lot and they say, I don't know why I need you, but my exchange where I want to list told me I'm not allowed to list unless I have a market making solution. So come back when you have a market making solution. And that's why I'm talking to you. Please help me, you know. So it's kind of quite straightforward, you know. And there's a lot of awareness now that when you issue a token, if it's dead, if it's illiquid from day one, it's not going to be a lot of fun for anyone, you know. So that's kind of like the straightforward part. And again, we hear run managed accounts and things like that. On the exchanges, it's sometimes, so a lot of, exchanges in the crypto world actually trade against their own clients. And that's unfortunate, you know, uh, 
fact, but actually a lot more actually aware that they're not supposed to do that or not allowed to do that actually. So then actually they ask for a solution, a market making solution where we actually, somebody else does the, uh, does the market making for that. And then it's actually, again, a, a bit different setup actually that there you actually do it through a loan on a corporate account of the service provider, market making service provider. And many times actually the exchange itself supplies the capital which is actually quite unusual, but they do that. And if they don't do that, actually, then you have to have capital from different sources. And that's why for that reason, because Floftech is not a prop shop, we actually launch an investment product. So people invest into that investment product and the capital from that investment product is actually then deployed where you provide liquidity and uh, offer the market making solutions actually uh, for digital asset exchange. But then of course the capital providers in this investment product, which are all professional institutional investors, is not for retail. All of them, they actually benefit from all the all the all the fees actually and all the performance actually that you uh, get uh, by providing the market making solution. Again, this is highly unusual. You will not find um, how they say it, market making first in the traditional world that launch a fund, you know, to gather capital so that they can actually do market making. There are prop shops usually it means they have internal capital that they risk, you know, to do market making. It has added benefits, but it has huge risks, and I'm sure. If one of some people from your audience recall 2014, Knight Capital, Knight Capital Group was the largest U.S. market maker. They had one losing day, and with that one losing day, they blew up because they were risking capital on their own balance sheet. One losing had, 30 had, minutes. It was 30, 30 minutes. Exactly. I was just about to say that's a very swift way to, uh, you know, uh, alleviate your It capital, was like four, you know? 400 million plus. I don't remember what the number. It was a giant yep. amount of money that blew I up. See, yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's a few of the guys are actually in crypto now, by the way. I don't know if you, yeah, I mean, they, you know, quite a lot of these players have now entered in the crypto space, which is great, you know, for everyone. But it's really kind of, if you think about it, it, it's, it's a very risky business model because, you know, prop shops have a a small capital base, they leverage like crazy. And of course, you have a small loss, you're wiped out the next day. And again, this in the digital asset world, this cannot fly because by default, you have illiquid assets that are kind of by nature, then having them on your balance sheet and then repricing of those assets. How do you even book those things? What's the pricing methodology? How does the audit work? It will not fly. So it will be done off balance sheet. And so who are your biggest competitors today? So there's a, quite a few companies in the uh, crypto world uh, that I think they're doing really a great job. I mean, one of the oldest one is GSR, for instance, that I think is doing a great job. Um, then uh, DRW, I know that they're also uh, a former team member from DRW actually is working with us. So I know they also uh, do a little bit on the crypto side. So there's actually really quite a few solid companies. And I can mention some other names like Wintermute, Keyrock, Ember, and so on. There's really a lot of nice uh, companies actually that offer like, uh, they offer good service. You know, I think none of them are focused on the security token space for the, you know, the, the reasons that I mentioned. I think the biggest competitor to all of us is actually Citadel. Because Citadel, as you know, is the largest market maker in the, in the world now, pretty much. And, you know, every listing or IPO that you hear about now, there's usually a, like a press release and the, and the end last sentence is the market maker is Citadel Securities, you know. So if you ask me who is really our biggest competitor is actually Citadel. And when they enter this space, it, it then, you know. I like, I like that you say when they enter and not if when they, they enter. enter. Yeah. It's I'm not implying that I know that they might be entering already, but uh, when they enter, and they for sure will, because it's a natural progress. I mean, all of the big prop shops, are all, they've all yeah. dipped their toes, at least dipped their exactly. toes. I, I would be shocked if they haven't at least 
at least tested the waters a little bit yet. Yes, exactly. I mean, and certain things are public. For instance, if you just Google it, you see that Jump has been around for uh, quite some time. And, and yeah, like that. Jump, also, for instance, Hudson, I mean, Hudson River Trading, Acuna, they're all, they've all been here exactly. for, uh, for a while. Exactly, yes, yeah. And also to mention uh, B2C2, actually, who is doing great work on the OTC peer-to-peer trading. So there's like a lot of companies that are really doing great work. But I think, you know, in the context of the security token space and also working in a highly regulated environment, I don't think actually... I know that Flotech is this special child we don't you know want it to be highly regulated and also having an investment product where the capital comes from so we're not a prop shop so there's this a little bit of a difference but i think you know what's the right approach the future will tell and also if our approach is a good one the future will tell yeah i mean i think the focus on security tokens is interesting and i think it's i think well you know you're early Right. But I think yeah. I think that being positioned for that is quite interesting. I mean, it's it'll be interesting to see. You know, I don't know. What is your I mean, what is your timeline in terms of in terms of, you know, when do you think your service is, like at what point? And I'm not asking you for an exact date, but but yeah. broadly speaking, in your head, do security tokens become like 30 percent of your business or 50 percent of your business? Like how far oh. down the line do you think that's going to be? Yeah. I mean, I think, the first, I mean, I, I can, uh, again, this is a bit public, so you can find it. Uh, Archex will go live in March, you know, uh, so there you will have actually, hopefully, first uh, security tokens that will be there. So, but I think if you're asking me when will the, you know, where will this will become a majority of our business, this is, you know, one and a half year, two years out, you know. But again, you know, usually these things play out a lot faster than you think. It's like flat for a long time and then it skyrockets. Crypto. So it's lot, <laughs> crypto. Yeah, so it could be a lot faster than than I, I'm stating now. But I mean, that would be great for everyone, for all of us. But you know, it's better to be cons- let's be the Swiss conservative, you know, uh, uh, predictions and say a year and a half, two years out. Yeah. And so, what are your thoughts on DeFi, but specifically AMM protocols, and and what can we learn from them? So I think uh, automated market making protocols are fascinating uh, for two reasons. And not, not so much for me on the market making side itself, because kind of if you take a closer look, basically they just quote the, the price or show the price in a very simplistic way. It's kind of like so far off from professional market making uh, algorithms that, you know, it's kind of, you kind of want to laugh when you see how it's done. But I think it demonstrates actually two things is actually you don't need an exchange for anything. Because if you think about it, an automated market protocol is just like you list whatever is in, uh, for whatever is on Ethereum network kind of ends up pretty much on Uniswap. You can whitelist it or not whitelist it, and then there's a bit of big bit of a difference. But basically, it's like you don't need an exchange, in my view. What it actually you know it demonstrates, and you can have a very simplistic way how to show the price. Actually, I think you know, especially in the context how uh, automated market making is done now, it will not work. Uh, and because similar approaches have been done before uh, in the 90s, and I can dive into details, you know, about that. But I think it's just an, an, an amazing use case. It works. And just to tell you, on our side, our clients already now demand that uh, also managing their tokens on an uh, automated market-making protocol should become a normal and standard part of our offering, actually. So, which is quite unintuitive that our clients who are token issues that they know so much about automated market making protocols and things like that and liquidity pools that they really say oh but how are you, are you can you handle the liquidity pool and arbitrage you know whatever is happening in the automated market making protocol you know as a part of the service so before we get into the 90s my first question in that regard is how do you manage risk and who takes the risk there when you're depositing money into an, you know an automated market maker 
Yeah, so Floftech's business model is actually because we're a technology company, it's the token issuer or the capital supplier who takes actually the risks. But likewise, then, you know, they actually get all the benefits, you know, if there is any actually profits coming from arbitraging because the market making protocols are slower, there's latency, you know, likewise, you have a dislocation between the price implied by the liquidity pool, by the formula from the liquidity pool and what's out there. So basically, they get that added benefit as well. But in the context of our business model, we're not a prop shop. The technology company is the client who gets the upside, but of course, the downside as well. <clears throat> and, and so back to your point about the 90s. So you mentioned to me off-air uh, small order execution <clears throat> systems in the 90s. Yeah. So can you kind of explain what that is to yeah. you listening? Yeah. So uh, this particular program called the Small Order Execution System, SOES, was actually, I mean, it was an idea basically to force the market makers in the traditional equity, U.S. equity markets is to quote prices for illiquid uh, shares actually at predetermined prices. And I, I don't want to go like into details because it's kind of quite complex. It's not complex, but it's like detail how they had to do it, but they had to quote things all the time. And it turns out when you, people know how you need to quote, it's very, very easy to gain your arbitrage, which is the same in automated market making protocols because you know how they're going to quote. And it was a great idea uh, in the early 90s that turned out to be a... a uh, in practice, a horrible idea because the people notice that they can arbitrage. Uh, uh, I will actually explain how it works. Basically, uh, a smaller execution system meant that they have to quote at the best bid, at the best at certain amount. So if you, if they, I have to quote 10K at the bid and you show 5K at the bid, I have to put that as, uh, extra 5K at the bid, at the best bid, such that, you know, we are quoting minimum uh, amount. And that also, uh, you know, was... Um, uh, was uh, uh, mandated in, on the on the other side of the world. Now, what you learn really fast is that you can actually yourself open two accounts, and then basically just on one side of the account, if this is the spread, you move the bid up on one of your accounts. Yeah, then the market maker has to match it, and on the other side of your account, you just sell it back to the market maker. You know, and then you move down the bid, and then you reverse the. Then you basically do the thing on the opposite side. It basically, you can even find. I mean, you really have to love market making to read about this stuff. But I love it, so I read about it. Can you find the charts to basically look like step functions because they were gaming the the market makers all the time? The reason why this was like well known, you can Google it if you type in S O E S bandits because the people who arbitraged the market makers made so much money that they used to say they make money like a bandit, you know? <laughs> so those people were called SOES bandits and they made so much money on these poor market makers who are a part of this program that basically the market makers say, screw this, we're not going to do it because it's like, we're just getting arbitraged the whole day. And you, they even knew what was going on. It was not like a big secret, you know? And this is exactly the case, what happens in the automated market making protocols. You have the capital suppliers, so they put the, uh, uh, in the liquidity pool. And then basically, if you Google it, it's called impermanent loss. Basically, that, you know, as the liquidity pool changes, the price changes, but it's not aligned what's actually coming from the other markets. And it's just a, then it's just a simple art, you know. And then, of course, you realize, well, the capital, the people who put the capital in the liquidity pool, they're getting arped day and night. So it's the same story like the SOES bandits. And that's why I say the market making protocols, as they are done today, will not fly. Because the SOES. So we just need to read the history books and then say, is this the same like before? And we say, yes, but can then we need to change something? So they will change. And so how have 
how or or has FloveTech evolved since you guys first got started in in January 2018? And are you providing any sort of different services from when from when you started? And did, when you originally started, did you foresee you know security tokens being a bigger part of what you were doing back then, or is that kind of yeah. a newer thing? Yeah, yeah. I have to say that you know uh, because we had certain values as a company how we want to evolve and progress. I definitely underestimated uh, or overestimated the need to. Uh, work with a regulated and compliant entity is still actually it's quite normal that you know you are kind of not abiding to the normal code of contact you know i really thought it was very important actually it is important for a lot of players in the digital asset world but not for a lot and so that was kind of like a mismatch where i actually always felt like that would be a lot of added value but it turns out it's in the eyes of the market it's still not we're not at that state of maturity if i think i personally think it's a state of maturity and definitely on the security token side as you mentioned 2017, 18, we all thought this was going to fly very soon. We had announcements even from uh, six digital exchanges in Switzerland, June, July 2019, we go live. Now it's like November 2020, still not live. So it seems like we're always just around the corner. And when you hit the corner, you realize there's a bit more path ahead of us actually to be ready. So definitely, you know, this how the regulation will kick in or not kick in, and also kind of uh, security tokens, it's definitely taking a, a lot longer than expected. Yeah. And so how many or how deep down the list of tokens are you guys trading both, um, you know, with the capital that you've raised from outside, but also, you know, when you're, when you're market making for an exchange, is there some sort of limitations to the tokens you're, you're willing or comfortable trading? And, and how yeah. do you make a determination whether an asset is tradable? Yeah, so on the token, when I... Uh, token issue approaches that for our service, then we definitely, we are do our due diligence, both in terms of the tokens, is it, that they have a non-action letter, is it a really a non-security tokens and things like that, where it's where they want to trade it and things like that. But we are quite flexible because really, you know, the, the goal of our market making service is actually that from day one, when that token is listed, you know, that it has some liquidity and that it kind of doesn't die out the next day, you know. So there actually, it's kind of like we are we're open to really work and we work really, really with a lot of uh even some so small token projects actually they really have the passion actually kind of to have their token liquid but it's not even you know it's beyond the top 100 working with the exchanges actually they pretty much and also this is includes actually the capital from the investment product there we deployed actually for the most liquid and well-known uh, cryptocurrencies and that's actually uh, you know um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and pretty simple reason. Those are classified as payment tokens in Switzerland, meaning it's like any other currency, like you're doing trading uh, pound or yen or something like that. And we also, when we work with exchanges, uh, we also are open towards and we provide liquidity for the kind of like the top 30. But beyond that, actually, we are not comfortable risking external capital or deploying external capital, actually, for tokens that are kind of like... Uh, uh, further out than kind of this top 20, top 30, kind of in a nutshell. And so how have you seen liquidity evolve since coming into the crypto space? I mean, obviously the answer is it's increased, right? But like, yeah. you know, what do you think of, of, of the you know, current state of both, you know, uh, spot markets, but also, you know, futures and derivatives markets as well? Yeah. So I have to say that my kind of our first hand experience is actually the markets are a quite bit more liquid than things when how it's perceived and i can even have like a few data points is you know we had occasions where we basically turned the whole portfolio like it was like a million trade from a net short to net long or vice versa and we would do like a million trade in, in a very short time period or with limit orders actually when you exit these kind of trades even if you do it super smart you know and we do it super smart 
basically the whole order book goes berserk for the next, you know, one hour, you know, then you realize if it was really that liquid, us doing a million trade will not move a needle action, you know? And how, how, so deep, of, you know, how deep do you think this is? Like, if you do that for Bitcoin, I assume you'd be okay, right? But like, at what point is there kind of a tipping point where, okay, there's just no way this asset is liquid anymore? Yeah, I, so I think also in addition to what you mentioned, it very much depends on uh, volatility. So when right. the volatility spikes, I mean, the books are, I mean, you, you can even see it firsthand, the books are right. quite empty. Yeah. Our data analytics show actually, yeah, right. that it, it becomes quite a liquid quite fast. And that's why also you have these huge moves because if Bitcoin was so liquid, it wouldn't go up and down 10%, you know, within a day if there was so much liquidity out there. So it, right. that's just not the case, yeah. Right. But my experiences and our experience is just like Bitcoin is quite liquid. You can do big sizes, you know. And also, I mean, the uh, I can talk publicly about this because it is public in the Square White Paper, like how they actually bought cryptos for the treasury. You see, actually, they, they did like a WeWap algorithm, you know, so they bought cryptos over time. It was basically done within a very short time period if you do it very smartly and through algorithmic execution, you know. So it can be done. But I think if you want to do huge sizes and, you know, I heard these stories many times, you know, like you can do 15 million, 100 million or, or like this, even 10 million. I just don't get it where people uh, execute this kind of, uh, it can happen, but it's just like not my, uh, it's not like in FX where you do a 10 million transaction, like nobody even blinks an eye, you know, that's definitely we're far, far away from that. Actually. Right, right, right. That makes sense. And so. Are you doing any sorts of non-market making strategies and, and do you have plans to implement any in the future? Yeah, we actually also within the investment product uh, deploy uh, uh, momentum strategies, intraday ones. So where we literally, you know, um, kind of if I have to say, you know, all these big uh, market moves that we see now where we try to take advantage of them to capture the returns from them. So we do deploy them. But in terms of like the the number of trades, how we do it, it's basically heavily skewed towards the uh, the liquidity provision market making strategy side. Yeah. But yeah, we definitely use them uh, because there's just a lot of opportunities out there in this current environment. And so, what types of data are you using in your quantitative models? I assume it's mostly just market data at this point. And you know, do you have any? Is there are there any other data sets that you're interested in incorporating in your you know I guess non market making or even in your market making strategies? Yeah. So at the moment, we are using fully the data that come from the exchanges. So that means the full order book and trades and all that that we uh, get from them. I do have to point out, I mean, the APIs that you see coming from those exchanges, it's uh, coming from the traditional world where everything is fixed based, you know, uh, in terms of protocols and kind of what you see there. It's quite surprising, you know, but this is the current state of the matter. Uh, so we use market data or also for order book data at the moment. What I think is super interesting going forward for us, and this is, you know, something that I think there's so much news, market news actually coming out of the crypto world. And once when this is integrated within the trading strategies, especially kind of beyond the, the Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, you know, Ripple, maybe if you kind of go uh, beyond that, I think this will be a goldmine for every uh, quantitative investment fund or market making firm to use this kind of data, this will be a no-brainer, yeah. Uh, but of course, you know, to then take this kind of uh, advantages, you need liquidity if you want to execute and benefit from that. So I think it will kind of go hand in hand, actually, as the market evolves. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And and so the question that we ask all of our guests is, how do you define fundamentals for crypto, uh, and and does it depend on the token? And I'd love to kind of hear your answer today, but also the answer that you would have given me back in 2013, 2014, and, and if that yeah. answer 
has changed. Yeah. So I get asked, you know, uh, quite often, like, can I describe Bitcoin to people and why does it even have value and so on, you know? And then usually the question that pops out is, is Bitcoin digital gold? Like, because kind of, if you think about it, like kind of, it makes sense. It's, uh, you know, you can't really print it out of thin air. You know, there's certain, not scarcity. I mean, there's actually on Bitcoin, there's a limitation, but, you know, gold is scarce and things like that. And then is this, is uh, uh, Bitcoin really digital gold or not? And when you read about what makes gold so special is that gold is a universal collateral. That means that anywhere on the planet where you show up and you say, I have gold, can you give me a credit line at good interest rate? People say, yeah, we can't give you that. You know, If you show up in Japan with Swiss government bonds, they will not give you a credit line if you put uh, Swiss government bonds as collateral, actually. So they will not do that, actually. Because, you know, what's the logic is that uh, gold is kind of doesn't have credit risk or counterparty risk, so you can put it up as collateral and you know, they will give you a credit line. So the question is then, to, for Bitcoin to be digital gold, it should be a universal collateral. So it means if you show up at Goldman Sachs and say, I have a ton of my Bitcoins, give me a huge credit line. Yeah, good luck that. with that today. <laughs> not yet. They'll tell you not yet, you know. So in that context, like I'm trying to relate it to gold, I don't think Bitcoin has the fundamental value in the eyes of the people who believe that as gold. Yeah. But I think actually Bitcoin has different values and it's a part of the different generation, the mindset of a different generation. And for our generation, Bitcoin definitely is digital gold and gold is not the equivalent of that. You know, I don't think we can relate to it like that. In terms of, you know, uh, other tokens, I definitely think, I mean, for me, Ethereum is like a way how to benefit. Uh, how could you directly benefit equivalently from the evolution of internet? Because on top of internet, we built a lot of things, you know, and can you benefit from the TCP IP protocol somehow? I kind My of next question was going to be the protocol versus application argument, which is what you're bringing exactly. up now is, is where should the value accrue in Ethereum? Yeah. So I think in the short term, it will definitely uh, accrue towards the protocol, but the big winners of all of this digital asset ecosystem will be actually applications. So meaning if we talk about finance, it will be financial products. So today, if you want to have a crazy financial product, you go to Goldman Sachs and they will securitize whatever you imagine. This is kind of like what, in my view, is the company who creates the best financial product will be the big winner. of Built the on asset. top of Ethereum or any of the other products. Exactly. And not to be, you know, uh, uh, not to... Uh, be not respect highly of the work, but in five to 10 years, if we're still talking about the blockchain, then it didn't succeed because that means it doesn't work actually. Today, nobody normal knows how the TCP IP protocols work unless you have like a PhD in computer science and you have to do it for your thesis, you know? But nobody knows about it, but we all know about the big players, Google, Facebook, Amazon, whatever, you know? So that's how it, you know, <laughs> try to answer that question. Right, and I think also just along the lines of mainstream adoption too, I mean, we need to... We need to simplify crypto. And I think like the way that you explained earlier, how you explained Bitcoin to your father, right? You know, the fact that, hey, you know, you don't have to go wait at the bank for two days for my money to, 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 to be deposited, you know, within 10 minutes, you can receive it. I think that makes sense, right? And I think there are other, you know, interesting kind of use cases there, I guess, more along the digital cash, you know, part of it with, you know, like, you know, USDT or any other, you know, advanced econ economy collateralized stablecoin with the idea of like remittances and things like that and kind of exactly. removing that from the blockchain layer, I think is, is quite an interesting, interesting argument. So is there anything that you're seeing today, any applications that you're seeing today where you're like, hey, 
I think this could be a home run or, or I think they're at least getting towards the right direction or are you still kind of waiting to, you know, kind of in a wait and see mode? So, I mean, on the personal side, I really like two projects. So I'm happy to pitch them. You know, one is actually around the digital identity. Like how do you uh, confirm in a non-trusted way, actually, that, you know, somebody is actually a human or not. So I really like, uh, it's a project called IDINA that basically kind of uh, tries to confirm if you are a person and they do it in a very clever way. And they basically uh, do something called flips, you know, kind of trying to, uh, knowing that AIs don't really understand well context, you know. So if they look at a picture and me and you at the beginning smiling and starting the conversation and then ending it and then me walking away, if you put it as pictures, the AI doesn't know how to align them properly, you know. So this is actually what this project tries to solve and then uses the blockchain actually as a, as a trust, non-trusted environment actually to then confirm that somebody is a person or not. So for instance, that's, I think it's a super cool application because it actually has nothing related to finance, nothing related to payments or, you know, but it's just like a cool application of this technology. So I personally like this kind of ideas. I also think like creating markets on demand and opening up the financial infrastructure. So if I can on demand create a derivatives instru instrument and on demand get a market maker for that and on demand, you know, get a, a, a margining system for that, I think that would be kind of like a very cool idea. Uh, there's a couple of projects working on that. The one that I know uh, that I read the most is actually Vega that kind of has this Vega protocol that kind of like on demand creates uh, derivatives, pretty much whatever you want. So these are kind of like the things that I personally like. Uh, but again, these are projects are still early stage and compared to, you know, the better well-known one, it's like uh, far off, you know, far off. but these are my personal favorites, you know. And so what worries you most about the crypto space and what has you most excited? Um, I think uh, in terms of... Um, I think there's a very unique opportunity for us to rebuild uh, the financial markets and infrastructure in the right way. Because if you kind of reflect on it, why did Bitcoin came about? Is because, you know, people saw the financial crisis and said, wow, this, there's so much wrong, so many wrong incentives in this financial markets, financial industry. The infrastructure itself doesn't work and let's do something about it. That's actually why Bitcoin came about. That is the motivation here. And then the question is, do we take this opportunity the right way? Or do we just do a replica of the old traditional world and just put it in a different context with a different technology? So I think this is kind of my worry, which is more kind of like philosophical in that sense. Um, short term, my worry is can people even deliver? You know, uh, we've been talking about Ethereum uh, 2.0 for a long time. It looks more closer than it will go live. So I think just us as an industry and as a community delivering on our promises, I think that's highly important. And what am I bullish about? I mean, pretty much everything. But especially, you know, I'm bullish when I see the passionate and committed people uh, that are a part of the digital asset industry, you know. I've been around now in the Crypto Valley for quite a few years. And the people, you know, who are running now and pushing now are pretty much the same that were, you know, there five, six, seven years ago, you know. So you really see actually there's a super uh, strong community actually behind it. And that will keep on pushing and keep on delivering new solutions and technology pretty much no matter what happens. So, but in the end, we will all benefit from it. I'm, I'm, Quite sure about that. And so, a last uh, fun and unrelated question is: If you weren't in finance, what kind of job do you think you'd have today? So, I actually, as a kid, uh, loved football, and uh, I was always actually dreaming to become a soccer uh, in US. I was dreaming to become a soccer player. You know, I even went to trials to quite a few big uh, European clubs, uh, but unfortunately, it was a quite a, like a, 
Uh, it basically, you no, know, I was not good enough at that stage actually, so I couldn't make it. I really, I was aiming for the top top uh, clubs in Europe, uh, and I kind of couldn't make it. And I said, oh, okay, let me go back and study mathematics. It's probably not going to be so bad. And I don't regret my choice actually that I went to study mathematics and that I am where I am today. But I loved soccer. I loved football. I mean, it was like the amazing experience running at the field, like being out in the air, open, you know, competing against other people, you know, and also the uncertainty of a football match, you know, a soccer match. It's like, if you have the ball, I don't know what you're going to do. And in that moment, isn't this so exciting, you know? I really love this aspect of sports, yeah? Uh, so I, you know, today I don't play football as much as I would like to, but I'm involved in something a lot more exciting and a lot more that will change the world in a bigger, bigger way than soccer can ever change it. So I'm happy to be part of the digital asset industry. Awesome. And, and, and so how can people find out more about you, reach out to you online? Yeah, so please, you know, you can go to the website at floftech.com or you can just email me at anton uh, at floftech.com and happy to uh, brainwash you, I mean, offer you the solutions <laughs> and, you know, tell you about the amazing things that we're doing. Here. Awesome. Thanks so much, Anton. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure.